Jingi walla blagami arako dukum. Jendamani nyali garamanyali nya. Nyali nya nyathan nyathan jen. Garamanyali tugun gunu. Wana jangma malagunu gala tugun. Nyali nya tugun gunu. Bugube blagami. Thank you, Delta K, a Raku Bunjalung woman, for welcoming us to country. Delta is a long-term supporter of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to Conversations from Byron, a podcast series featuring writers from the 2020 festival lineup. In this session, Melanie Chang talks with Mirandi Ruo about her novel, Stone Sky, Gold Mountain which is available for purchase from the bookroom at byron.com. Hi everyone and welcome to another instalment in the Conversations from Byron series. Ordinarily this event would be taking place in a marquee in sunny Byron Bay, but alas, for obvious reasons, in the strange year of COVID-19, we will be conducting this conversation digitally instead. My name is Melanie Cheng. I'm the author of two books, a short story collection called Australia Day and a novel called Room for a Stranger. Today, it gives me great pleasure to introduce you to a wonderful Australian writer, Mirandi Rewo. Mirandi is the author of Stone Sky Gold Mountain, which has been shortlisted for not one, but three Queensland Literary Awards, and the novella The Fish Girl, which won Seizures Viva la Novella and was shortlisted for the Stella Prize. Mirandi, welcome and congratulations on your exquisite book. Hello, Melanie. Thank you very much. (laughs) To begin, I'd like to give listeners uh, a sense of your impressive and growing body of work. I want to do this because I think there's a really important and unique pursuit at its core. Um, Your stellar shortlisted novel, The Fish Girl, followed the story of Mina, the unnamed Malay trollop in Somerset Maugham's short story, The Four Dutchmen. In another novella published last year in the Griffith Review, you followed the story of Anna, one of Paul Gauguin's life models. And now with Stone Sky Gold Mountain, you focused on Ying and Lai Yue, Chinese siblings trying to establish a life for themselves on the Queensland goldfields in the late 19th century. In all these stories, you bring the once invisible and voiceless to the forefront of our imaginations. When did you decide that this would be the focus of your work. Mm. I don't know if I ever at first decided that would be the focus. I think I kind of fell into it. I've realised, it was only a little while ago I realised it was um, there was a call out for writers to talk about how they felt about Little Women. Remember, you know, Little Women because the movie had just come out. And and I loved Little Women and Good Wives. I just loved them to read them. I still do. But I realised in sort of trying to respond to this question, I realised that um, in growing up I was Eurasian, obviously my dad's Chinese-Indonesian, and I realised that I'd come to, I guess you aspire to or come to love this, you know, this life that's led by white women and that maybe there wasn't a lot out there for me as a young woman back in the day to read about people with my kind of background as, as I mean, it could be gendered, but also as Eurasian, as part Asian in, in a country that's, I guess, been colonised or, you know, is, is mostly white. 
Um, so I guess originally it sort of came from that, that I, my first novel that I wrote that wasn't published, but it was set in Indonesia. So I thought, and it was a crime fiction. I just thought that was a point of difference that I could write about that hadn't really been written before. Um, because of course, when you're starting out writing, you're trying to find something new to say that might appeal to publishers and readers as well, you know, um, and I thought that was something I could take to the table. And then, of course, then I looked into the Eurasian or Asian population of Victorian London for my other crime fiction, the Heloise novels. And it was then that I came across Mina in the um, Somerset Morn story. But actually, it was probably Heloise that I really started to look into, I guess, subjects who were elided in their own time, which were... or or falsely, maybe maybe falsely represented um, in that they were Asian people and sex workers and women, you know. So so that's where my interest, I guess, in, in writing about those people um, sort of elided or even ignored in society in that time um, came to me because I think, I think also – we need to recognise that a lot of what was written at the time, be it non-fiction or fiction, was from a certain point of view. You know, like usually it was from, um, you know, you know, it was classed. It was probably middle class and above, and male, white, and how they saw the world, and that was sort of what's brought down to us is how they saw the world. So it was interesting, sort of delving into these kind of people who who were not represented in fiction. Sorry, that was a very long-winded answer. <laughs> but I didn't I don't think I originally set out to to find these elided characters. I think it sort of half came from where of my own self. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting because it sounds like that kind of realization came reasonably late-ish um when I was reflecting on, you know, what I talked to you about today. You know, obviously we both have Chinese fathers and Eurasian heritage, and I was trying to think about when I started to, you know, appreciate the lack of diversity perhaps in the books I was reading. And I guess I thought back to Amy Tan's books in mm. like the 1990s, and I, I feel like when I read those books, I was kind of like finding a home, and I was surprised by my emotional reaction to them, even though up mm. until that point I actually hadn't even appreciated the absence of those characters until it was shown to me in some ways. And so I was kind of interested to know if, if you had a similar experience and also if on some level you are writing yourself into the story. That's interesting. <laughs> Not to get too psychoanalytical. but <laughs> that's, um, that's interesting what you say about Amy Tan because I know, I think we've discussed before, the two of us, that um, there are um, – some Asian women writers who take or or readers who take exception to some of Amy Tan's work mm. and that maybe it's a bit generic or it's it sort of um is it's cliched maybe is the argument mm. of of uh what Chinese men are like and I think the same thing happened to Maxine Hong Kingston she she was attacked also for sort of writing about bad Chinese men you know but but she was writing about particular people I mean she's she wasn't writing about every Chinese man you know so but I think even even if their work 
is cliched or whatever, it did sort of cleave a path for, I think, us as readers as well as writers. And also recognising that that there was an interest because Amy Tan was a, you know, blockbuster, you know, books, to, to be able to to see that there was interest in that setting and, you know, about the Asian life in, in say, America, um, that sort of immigrant life, that, that was really refreshing. And like you, I don't think, even up to when I started writing or getting these books published, I don't think I appreciated or recognised the lack of diversity myself. I think, I guess it's like what I was saying before about the little women. I just, I had, because I was brought up in Australia, I, I embraced what everybody else embraced, you know, um, in, in what they read and what they aspired to. Um, myself, am I trying to write myself? I guess there is a part of that. It's not just myself, I don't think. I know with the fish girl, it was, oh gosh, maybe it, maybe it sounds a bit highfalutin, but you're trying to write women, I think, mostly certain women back into the story, you know, like in, in a sort of coming from quite an indignant place, you know, like that you're just trying to find this sort of place and recognition for these people again. And also, you know, these women that are still going through the same sort of things now, you know, and I think there's a place, like, I think for me, it's easier to write about them in this historical sense, you know, say women who are trafficked and, and raped and murdered and things like that, because, I guess it's in the, you know, in the, that sort of comfortable zone of the past, but also, I guess, especially to say with sex work or being trafficked, maybe it's not my place to write about a contemporary experience of it, you know, when, when there are other women who can write those, those experiences. So, but certainly just trying to recognize that they existed and what happened to them. Yeah. And that would be the same with sort of racist attitudes from the past as well. Yeah. So what, once you kind of decided that that's where your focus lied, I, I wonder how did you decide or how do you decide whose story you're going to focus on? So there are so many, I think, invisible and voiceless characters. And with reference to your most recent work, why did you choose to tell the story of Ying? And mm. So it was when I was writing Heloise and I was looking into all these early sort of Chinese in Victorian London and I thought, and I wanted to write something set in Australia and I thought, well, maybe I'll look into our earliest Chinese inhabitants, you know, in Australia. And I didn't go back to the earliest, earliest ones, but the Gold Rush was an obvious place. And it was originally going to be brothers I wanted one of you know I was going to write I think a love story between um, a white Australian girl and the Chinese boy because I've always been fascinated by those stories you know when you meet somebody and they say oh yeah my great-grandfather was Chinese I've always been you know but they look white Australian you know like I've always been really um, fascinated by those stories because you do wonder how they got past say you know like a century ago or longer how they got past the racism in in their own little society, like in little township or whatever. So I've always that's always I found fascinating. So I did originally want to write about it. It was sort of like a boy girl love story, but pretty quickly I think I decided I wanted to write about a, a woman. Like I wanted to write 
about women and Lai Yuk didn't even have um, a part. He was just going to, his story was just going to be told through Ying's. But his story in my mind just grew so much that then he had his own part. But originally Ying, I just wanted to write about a woman's experience, I guess, because I'm a woman. And um, that's how I came up with them. Hmm. I recently found on my parents' bookshelf a, a book called Mixed Relations. And um, I don't know if you've come across it, but it documents um, the history of Asian Aboriginal contact in Northern Australia. Mm. And um, it outlines the kind of extensive trading network that existed between the northern shores of Australia and China for almost 200 years before Mm. white settlers even arrived. Mm. Um, And I've heard you say in other interviews that that area of Queensland that you um, depict in Stone Sky Gold Mountain, um, at at that location there were up to 19,000 Chinese, in Mm. fact many more than there were white settlers at the time. Um, And, you know, these kind of statistics are quite shocking actually when you consider that our literature and art and textbooks in Australia really don't reflect that. And I was wondering when you came to doing this research, were there many resources for you to to call upon? Is this history of ours well documented or did you have to look really hard to find find these answers? I yeah, I really think it was whited out with the White Australia policy. I really think it was sort of and I did read somewhere that even like the Chinatowns in say Cairns and Darwin they didn't even sort of just become decrepit from loss, you know, loss of people after the White Australia policy came in. It, you know, to a degree they were knocked down on purpose, you know, at the time, you know, say in the, I think the early 1900s. But actually when I started looking into setting it in the gold rush period, I first looked in Melbourne. I went to, you've got a few great museums, like you've got your museum and then there's, you know, Bendigo and Ballarat, and then you've got the Immigration Museum mm. and you've got the Chinese Museum. And so I went through all that and I loved it. But obviously I think, not that there have been many or any novels written about it as such from the Chinese point of view, but I did feel everybody's familiar with the Victorian gold fields, especially, you know, like with Lambing Flats. And I think even SBS, we're going to take a, make a TV series this year set in that area, you know. So I... um. And my husband's a geologist and he sort of kept on suggesting places more and more north and we've lived in Cairns before. And through my research, I eventually, because there's this great book by Eric Rolls where he's just got everything probably from Trove, you know, the Trove kind of things of Hmm. Chinese, the mention, I guess, of Chinese or, you know, and it's called Sojourners. And and he even in the book just goes further and further north, I guess, because it was with time. So one of the later ones was the northern the North Queensland gold rush was a lot later than the Victorian one. And then when you actually go there, like to Cooktown, and then they've got two museums. They've got their actual museum and then they've got the gold rush Palmer River Museum. And then we went and then there's the Palmer River Tavern, I think. And then, you know, and then into Maytown. It really was very rich with information, rich. And then I met another fellow who... Um, his great-grandfather, I think, was one of the first shopkeepers in Maytown, which was uh-huh. astounding because he had all like the photos and the information as well. So actually it's quite astounding that there is so much information about it if you go up there and you look for it. It really is. Mm. And like I was saying, I don't know if it's true, but at the Palmer Tavern, 
they had they sold you know salty plums melanie mm. you know, they, yeah and they just had them in little like ziploc bags and i was like oh my god salty plums and, she, and the girl <laughs> behind the counter was like yeah you can get them anywhere and i was like no you can't and i <laughs> and i honestly think maybe that was uh you know, a leftover of the period as well, you know, mm. them getting in all their produce because all the produce stock shops and the vegetables and everything were mostly run by the Chinese. Mm. And what I really loved about, you know, the book is that you, you know, you really put us there in that place. You ignite our senses. You give us this great sense of place. So once you've done your research, you know, in terms of inhabiting that world of a bygone era when you're living in 2020, uh, well, in the years leading up to, well, as you were writing the book, um, how do you kind of get yourself into that, that space as a modern woman? Like, do you surround yourself with photographs and images of the place? How did you, cause you've done it so well. Yeah. Um, like I said, luckily I, we did camp there at, in Maytown, which is, there's, nothing there now left over of the township but it was a bustling township I guess you know what's helpful I do have photos I do surround myself with photos I take copious notes I was lucky in that I already had grounding in writing about the Victorian period with the Mm -hmm. Heloise novels so I'd already done two or three years I guess of research into just that period like so I already had a sort of you know, knowledge of language and, you know, what they're wearing and that sort of thing anyway. Uh, I think another thing that's helpful, you know, and then just so much reading, the, the research, and then you're picking out little things that people are saying in primary sources, like in their own journals and things, you know, you're mm. picking out just little things about the weather or or being sick, you know, um, like in the Chinese journal I read about you know the bleeding of the shoulders from those poles you know from walking with them for so many miles with those heavy poles on their shoulders there's all those little things you can take from especially from those primary sources and then the other thing that's handy too is to watch programs is to watch things as well so Mm. I think it's just trying to use all your senses to immerse yourself and when I write I usually like to do it all like I won't come back and forwards to it. I will like trying to, I will immerse myself for that time. So I am thinking in that time and of the story while I'm writing it and 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 trying to write every day, like just to keep up the momentum um, of staying in that world. Hmm. I've been reading kind of your book and also um, Kate Grenville's recent book and I interviewed her recently because um, hers is a, a historical novel, but it's also a fictional kind of reimagining mm-hmm. of the past. And she says that she's more interested actually in the present than in the past, even though she focuses on historical fiction. Mm. And I, I think you've said something similar in other interviews about you, these books and wanting them to still reflect on the present. Mm. Um, and certainly when I read Stone Sky Gold Mountain, I found it really pertinent to current events. Um, mm. And in particular to the reckoning that many Western countries seem to be having with their colonial pasts. Um, so I was wondering what lessons you think readers can take away from your book that they can use now um, when they reflect on the kind of life in contemporary Australian and these kind of reckonings that the world is yeah. facing. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure that I go into it thinking of 
you know, what lessons people can get. I, I guess I, I just want to point out things that are still going on. Like these things happened, what, 150 years ago and some things just haven't changed enough, whether it's to do with sexism or racial violence, that sort of thing. So, And I have talked before about like the racist scene in that shop I kind of based on a YouTube video <laughs> I found of sort of a racist taunting that sort of happened in a in an RSL or something here, you know, a couple of years ago. So I think I think it's important I I think it's important in historical fiction for me. I understand other people might want to revisit the past for for its own sake. But I I like to sort of reflect upon like you said, like what what happened then and that that hasn't changed enough now what I do try to avoid though is my characters being too prescient I don't I don't believe Mm. in my characters being overly feminist or overly not racist you know when when say like with Miriam I think there would have been a certain amount of racism that would have just been normal to them you know like like we'd be appalled at it but to them it was just normal and right to be um how they were about these people from another country I mean you know the British were like that about the French I mean I just I think being too prescient is not helpful but I also think that in some cases you can read about say with feminism there were feminist writers you know like Wollstonecraft in the 1800s writing about you know women in gilded cages and things like that so I think I think you you just need to couch it well so don't be too prescient but but I think some of it can actually be close to the truth you know you're just sort of highlighting it so you have to I guess balance it yeah yeah and um following on from that you know when you are spending so much time thinking about these women from the past uh, I wonder if when you look back do you feel kind of thankful at the progress we have made as women or do you kind are you kind of more shocked that we haven't progressed further um yeah that's interesting no I think we've progressed heaps I think when you look back I mean I actually don't know if a writer now could grasp maybe how how limited it was for many women back then but then on the other hand I think lots of women probably had some freedoms we don't recognize or or know about now but um I think what hasn't changed enough is violence against women so that's Mm. that's actually what I do write about it's not so much I think in many ways I, I feminism has brought us forward and and but violence against women I don't think has progressed as much as it should have no Mm. and you you do highlight that in the book um the other thing I was really interested about as a fellow writer as well is when I read your acknowledgements you uh thank uh the elders of the western Mm -hmm. Yalanji people um for consulting with you and you also mentioned someone called James Singh for sharing Mm. his family history with you and um, yeah, I'm really interested and curious about this process of consultation and what that was like for you. And well, James James Singh's the one I was talking about, whose great grandfather 
or great great grandfather was one of those first shop owners on oh, right. okay. yes and his, yeah. his grand his great granddad's pictures are all up in the museums and everything in Cooktown and I just happened somebody when I was in Shanghai said you should go meet this guy named James Singh and I thought maybe he was related to Billy Singh who was a very famous sort of sniper Chinese sniper in the Australian army and then it turned out like we were having dinner and it just turned out that actually his family were the same family as I would you know the same like from the shops that I was writing about so that was a huge wonderful coincidence and he does um all these things like I see him on Facebook where his family and that this extended family they just all went to Maytown all together like all these descendants all went together to Maytown to have a look at where it all started and and next year they're going to China and and I just really want to be part of their family <laughs> and I did send him the book and then he, you know, I didn't hear anything and then he just got in touch with me lately and said, oh, I found it in my mum's bookcase. She thought it was for her. Anyway, and he said, I'll read it. And I, and I did write to him, it's just fiction, like in capital letters, it's just fiction um, <laughs> because, because he knows all the real stories and his stories are great, but, I mean, they're for him to, him to tell. With the Yalanji people, um, mm. because, you know, when you do the research, when I did the research for this book, and it was going to be, like I said originally, just, you know, a love story between the Chinese and the white Australian. But when you do the research, there was, it just becomes very, very, very clear. There's no way you could write about the area at that time without acknowledging what happened to the local Indigenous people. And mm. on one hand, it's not my story to tell, and I was certainly never going to appropriate any voices. But so I had to think long and hard about how I was probably out of this the whole process of writing this novel I probably put the most thought into this and how I would I guess represent what happened in those years and Mm. and I've decided the only way I could tackle it would be from writing what my characters might have seen so I took some primary sources um, Mm. written by white men you know about what they did or what they saw and I skewed them to be from my, you know, Lai Yo's or, or Ying's point of view and what they saw. Um, and that's how I've introduced. So a couple of those things in the novel are actually like I've, I've seen and I've read in a, in a primary source and then sort of turned into the scene, you know. Anyway, mm. so I did consult with the CEO of the Western Yulanji people who are from that Maytown area and, you know, just to ask if I could write this book. Um, which is set on their land, um, and also I asked if there, if I could write about the violence against his people, and he said I should, and mm-hmm. and I also wanted, I said, can I write because the Chinese were terrified of them, of the Aboriginal people, so I I said, can I write about how scared the Chinese were of the um, Yulanji people, and he he laughed because yes. Um, they were terrified of them. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and I think that's just a really important process mm. and I feel, yeah, I just feel like it had to be, it was supposed to be done, yeah. Mm. And I've tried to tackle, yes, I've tried to portray that aspect as sort of thoughtfully and respectfully as I can but also representing what I did read, you know. And it wasn't necessarily written in those terms. I mean, a lot of the tone was a lot more gung-ho and cowboyish, you know. Mm-hmm, That's yeah. the other thing that took, I took exception to was a lot of the fiction, I guess, and the non-fiction 
from that area and time is usually from a very sort of male um, frontier cowboy kind of attitude. Yeah. Well, that's why I think your book is so important to, to add to that and providing a fresh perspective. And unfortunately, I think we are reaching our time, even though I've only really touched on my my many, many questions that I have for you. Um, so we will need to wrap it up. But thank you so much, Mirandi, for joining me today. Um, the book is Stone Sky Gold Mountain. It is a wonderful book, not only for its stunning prose and thrilling plot, but because it will make you question everything you think you know about our shared colonial past. Thank you, Mirandi. Thank you, Melanie. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. This series has been generously supported by the Copyright Agency's Cultural Fund. For more conversations, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Mm-hmm.